Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's always a joy to be up here and preach God's word to you. In case you didn't get to hear Jay, we're going to find ourselves in Ruth chapter 2. We're looking at the second half, verses 14 to 23. While you open or load your Bible, uh, if you are new, if you're a guest, whether you're listening online or you're actually here present. We'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to pray for you. And so in the chairs or in the back connect desk, there are these things called connect cards. Fill one out, leave it, leave it in, the, in the back connect desk, and uh, one of us will get with you uh, within 24 hours uh, because we want to pray for you, we want to hang out with you, we want to take you out to lunch or dinner, all that jazz. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible because we're a Bible-believing church, we walk through books of the Bible, uh, we have those available for you. That's our gift to you. They're also in the connect desk. Take one if you know someone who would benefit from having one. Hook them up. So that's all I have. That's, that's as cool as I get. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series in Ruth. And I hope that you've been enjoying our time throughout this wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible. And uh, if you haven't been here or you're new, let me catch you up briefly on where we're at. In addition to talking a little bit about this thing called Providence. You'll notice on the graphic behind me, we've subtitled this series, The Providence of God. So I want to, I want to touch on that momentarily. The story of Ruth begins during the time of the judges. And during this period of time, the people of God were in deep rebellion against God, living in their sin. And as the author of Judges regularly writes, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That gives you the landscape for how things were during the time of the judges. However, just because things were dark and bleak, rebellious and corrupt, didn't and doesn't give the people of God a reason to fold in on their convictions. In Ruth, though it begins with great devastation, we see that there are some people who know the God of Israel and, not, and are not only rooted in their convictions, but are committed to living their faith out in spite of everything going wrong. In the beginning of Ruth, we learn of this little family, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion. And they live in the city of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means the house of bread. And what's happening that we learn in the opening verses, what we learn is that there is a famine in Bethlehem. And so the irony is that there is no bread in the house of bread. There's no food. So Elimelech, the husband, the father, moves his family about 30 miles away from Bethlehem to this town called Moab. And if you want to know more about the Moabites and their origin, you can go to Genesis 19 and you'll read all about them. Nevertheless, we see Elimelech move his family to Moab and we learn in the opening verses of chapter 1 that they lived there for about 10 years. And in the span of those 10 years, we learn that at some point, Elimelech dies. And then later on, both sons die, Malon and Kilion. They die. They died after they married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. So after these 10 years, we learn that the men have died and the women are now widows. 
And so what we end up learning is that um, at some point, the famine in Bethlehem is over and God visited his people with his grace and provision, hooking them up with food. And so Naomi learns about this, takes or wants to take her daughter-in-laws back to Bethlehem and at some point in their travels tells them that they need to go back to Moab, that they need to go back to their gods and to their people. And the Moabites were uh, 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 people who didn't know the Lord, who did not know the God of Israel. Right? Often Moabites worshipped Chemosh, who was all about uh, human sacrifice and sexual perversion. And so, so uh, Naomi is telling them, you should just go back. You should go back to your family. You should go back to your, your city. You should go back to uh, ultimately your gods. Orpah does so. She goes back to Moab. Whereas Ruth clings to her, and in an act of divine redemption, intervention, we see God save Ruth. And one of the most pivotal moments in this little story is in chapter 1, verse 16, where Ruth tells Naomi, hey, don't tell me to leave you anymore. Wherever you go, I will go. And here it is. She says, your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. Right? In the original language, it's read, your God, my God, your people, my people. That's what she tells Naomi. And so we close chapter one with them returning to Bethlehem and seeing Naomi go from this pleasant and sweet woman, which that's what Naomi means, to calling herself Mara, which means bitter. And last week, we looked at chapter two, or the opening of chapter two, where Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go glean. And gleaning was when people would go out into the field because they arrived in Bethlehem during the barley harvest, so there's grain to glean. She said, I'm going to go out and glean. And what that meant was that she was going to go on the outside of people's fields to pick up grain and grapes and anything that was left over because we learned last week that God had written into his law that uh, those who owned fields would not harvest the edges of the field, that that would be left for and reserved for um, the, the fatherless, the foreigner, the orphan, the forgotten, the outsiders. And so Ruth goes out and gleans, and she meets this chap named Boaz, right? And so we learned a little bit about him last week. She meets this guy named Boaz, and, and we see that his character um, is, is one of conviction and one that his, his, he's a man of action. And so he uh, shows favor upon Ruth. He blesses Ruth. He prays over Ruth in front of everybody. Everybody's getting to see this dude live his faith out among uh, the people of God. And we see Ruth is humbled by this. We see Ruth is incredibly thankful. And all of this to say, outside of just summarizing where we are, all of this to say what we are seeing in this first chapter and a half is the providence of God at work. See, the providence of God is the quiet and invisible hand of God. One of the things that makes the story or the book of Ruth so profound is that there are no miracles. We don't see people, um, we don't see people going to this little family and saying, thus saith the Lord, repent and return, like we do in some of the major or minor prophets. There are no big acts of repentance where you see this entire 
people just change direction. See, in, in, in situations like that, you see God's hand at work and very obvious. When it comes to providence, it's his quiet hand. It's his invisible hand at work behind the scenes in and around his people. You should know that there is a difference between providence and miracles. And sometimes Christians use these two words interchangeably, but there's, there's a difference. See, miracles are when God works loudly and, I would say it this way, suspends time and natural law in order to accomplish his means. Where something big and miraculous happens, like there's no way this could have happened. Providence, however, is where God is at work behind the scenes using ordinary people, using ordinary time to accomplish his means. He doesn't disrupt, or I should say he does not intervene when it comes to disrupting natural law and order. And so we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 2 this morning where Boaz and Ruth share a meal for the first time. And eventually Ruth learns that Boaz is a redeemer. And we're going to see as we continue in this series, particularly in chapter 3, that things get a little heated. But right now, we're seeing everything still unfold as we see providence of God at work. And what we will learn today about God's providence in Ruth is that redemption is not only freedom from bondage, but adoption into the family of God. We'll learn about this momentarily. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into verses 14 through 23. Father, we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who pours his grace out onto us this morning in spite of the week or morning that we've had. We are thankful for you to gather and worship you in song and under the preached word. So God, may we set our eyes, our mind, and affections on the need to hear from you this morning through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. This morning, it's going to be broken up into four sections. We're going to look at character, thanksgiving, revival, and redemption. You'll see these up on the screen behind me. But once more, character, thanksgiving, revival, and redemption. We're going to look at the three people that are involved in this story, beginning with and ending with Boaz. So let's begin. Okay? Where this is verses 14 to 16. Last week we spoke extensively about character, primarily from the person of Ruth. And today I want us to look at Boaz and the godly character that he displays, that he demonstrates. Last week, I gave you a definition for character from uh, author and philosopher Dallas Willard, who says character is who a person is and what they can be counted on to do. Last week, we said that Boaz was a man of action, yet his actions are grounded in his identity. In these two verses, we're looking at 14 and 16 once more, in these two verses, Boaz demonstrates godly leadership or good leadership through his character. Now, when it comes to this, here's, here's what I want you to know. 
all of us can learn from this. All of us are going to learn from Boaz because all of us are looking at Boaz. Last week, I told you that as we preach through the rest of the chapter, I'm going to talk to the men sometimes and talk to the ladies sometimes. Nevertheless, all of us can look at Boaz, but particularly, gentlemen, I want you to look at his character. First, we see Boaz extend grace toward Ruth by folding her in and inviting her to the dinner table. Let's look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Okay? What I want you to notice is that Boaz doesn't just include her among his workers, but the people of God. For Ruth, this is the first time she has experienced authentic biblical community. She has been folded into the family of God. She may know that on paper. And now she sees it lived out in community. And so what we learn from Boaz is that he's communal. He makes it an experience. He makes, her, makes the whole thing an experience by folding her in to what they have going on. Last night, one of the guys came over for dinner, and he worked some crazy hours and was going to work really, really late, so I knew he hadn't had dinner, and he had been traveling. And the thing about this is, we could have just had uh, dinner, ordered in some pizza, and whatevs, right? But because he had been traveling, and I hadn't seen him in a while, we like grilled steaks, and then we made uh, quesadillas, and then we sliced the steak in those quesadillas, and then we covered them in avocado, and then some cotija cheese on top of that. It was, it was like legit, you know what I'm saying? But the whole thing about that was, man, I'm going to fold you in. I want you to have a really good meal because you've been away, you've been working. Let's, let's experience this together. And in that, we talked about Jesus. We talked about what, what we're learning. We talked about what God is doing in our lives, all of those things. I think the valley, for the most part, demonstrates that really well. The table is one of the most important aspects of community in the valley, right? Oftentimes, I get questions from friends up north, pastors up north, and they'll say, man, uh, this is kind of funny, I think. And, and so they'll say, we have some Hispanic families coming to our church. Like, how do we reach them? And, and so one of the things I said is, do you have time and a table? Because that's, that's what you're going to need. You know, uh, we had, um, <laughs> we've had some individuals from our church move up to San Antonio. And they began attending uh, my friend's church uh, called the Well Community Church. Some of you have met Al. He's preached up here before. Okay. So they have community groups. And some of the people from the valley went to these community groups. And community group at some point was over, but not for them. And so Al texts me and he says, hey man, it's 11 and they're still here. We, we finished around 9.30. And I was like, yeah, unless you say something, they're, they're not going anywhere. And so, <laughs> right? And so, so the valley, I think, embodies that very, very well. And so we understand what the significance of being communal is. And this is what we see Boaz do. Secondly, we see Boaz serve Ruth. See, not only does he sit with his workers, which I think shows him to be a man of character. He's not just like, I'm the boss, I'm up here. No, he sits 
with his workers. He has a meal with his workers. But in addition to that, he demonstrates hospitality. It says that he passed her the roasted grain. He gave her the best elote, right? He's, like, that's what he hooked her up with. He, he's like, I'm going to fix it up for you. And he serves it to her. We see Boaz be uh, a man who demonstrates hospitality, right? And what we see in verse 14 is that in his hospitality, Ruth ate until she was, quote, satisfied and still had more left over, right? That's the end of verse 14. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. So we see Boaz, who is, who is a man who lives his faith out in community and folds others into it. We see a man who demonstrates hospitality by serving others. And thirdly, we see Boaz pour out his generosity onto Ruth in allowing her to glean among the sheaves. Right? Let's go to that. I think this is verse 15. So when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So what Boaz is saying, hey, she doesn't have to go out to the edge of the field anymore. She can go to where you guys are. And actually some of the grain that you've harvested, give her some of it so that she can get more. Like he pours his grace out onto her. He continues to protect her, right? That's one of the things he tells his young men. Hey, don't reproach her. In other words, don't bother her. Don't harass her. If I find out, you're going to deal with me. Like he continues to protect her. He continues to provide for her. And he goes above and beyond what the law had even required him to do. He treats her with dignity and respect. Last week, we looked at the character of Ruth and how she resembles the Proverbs 31 woman. I think here we see uh, the kind of man that we see in Proverbs 31 where, where the, the mother is encouraging the young king, telling him, open your mouth for the mute, for the, right of all who, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, and that's what we see Boaz demonstrate here. You see, in Boaz, we see a godly man whose characteristics and traits, if we're honest, are in opposition to how men generally were and are, and that is passive and abusive. See, abuse is horrendous, and let me just say this right now. If you're experiencing that, ladies, tell me right now and we'll take care of it. But in addition to that, abuse is horrendous, and it receives our immediate attention because it's obvious, it's evident, and it's extremely loud. But make no mistake, passivity is also a sin. We don't talk much about passivity, but it is a sin. Inaction is a decision. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Period. Passivity, just as much as abuse, is a sin. So let me ask you, everyone, but gentlemen, no, I'm asking you in particular. What does your character say about you? We see Boaz demonstrate his faith in community. We see him demonstrate hospitality and generosity. What does your character say about you? 
What would others say about your character? Gentlemen, if you're married, what would your wife say about your character? If you're not married, what would your brothers and sisters in the faith say about your character? What would your friends who don't know the Lord say about your character? Is there inconsistency? We can all look to Boaz to consider those questions. What does your character say about you? Boaz stands out as a man of godly character because in a time, remember, this is taking place during the time of Judges, because in a time where the people of God are in deep rebellion and corruption, Boaz doesn't forfeit or compromise in his faith. In fact, he goes above and beyond to demonstrate that he serves the God of Israel. Secondly, let's turn our attention back to Ruth. So that was Boaz. That was verses 14 and 16. We're going to look at Ruth, and then we're going to look at Naomi. And I'm just kind of letting you know, this is where we're going to start bouncing around in all of these little verses because of the dialogue that's taking place. So let's turn our attention back to Ruth. And while we looked at the beauty of her character last week, today we're going to see this overflow of thanksgiving, this overflow of gratitude. Earlier this year, we walked through Colossians, right? And as we look back, if you can think with me for a moment, one of the things that the Apostle Paul encouraged the church in Colossae, uh, one of the things he encouraged them with was this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, here's the key, so walk in him. This is Colossians 2, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, here it is, abounding in thanksgiving. He's telling the Colossians, as you have received Jesus, walk in the newness of your faith, abounding in thanksgiving. Rewinding back to Ruth, I think in this section, Ruth embodies what it means to abound in thanksgiving. That it's an overflow. It's a pouring out. In short, Ruth recognizes that she has received much grace from God through Boaz and does not hesitate in showing that same grace to others. First, we read earlier that she ate until she was satisfied, right? That was towards uh, the middle of verse 14. We don't know when was the last time she had a legitimate meal. We don't even know if she's ever had a lote, right? Like, we don't know any of that. She just had a legitimate meal. And through Boaz's generosity, she's provided for and then allowed to glean from the sheaves. Elsewhere, in verse 21, later on in the story, as she's talking to Naomi, go to verse 21. She said, Ruth said, He, that is Boaz, said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So not only did she find favor in being able to glean from his field, not only did she, uh, um, not only was she provided for with a legit meal, not only was she given more favor to glean from the actual field itself with Boaz's workers, now she has a job. Boaz just said, I want you to, continue to gleaning from this field for all harvest. That's about six to eight weeks worth of work. 
And so when you begin to consider the providence of God, like all of this just sounds like, oh man, as fate would have it, or as just so happened to be, as things start turning around, we're seeing the quiet hand of God's providence at work in the life of Ruth. And so here, she has a job, she's been provided for, she didn't just get a good meal, she has a good job. And last week, we see that just gleaning, just being in the field and being able to scrape some grain brought her to a posture of humility and thanksgiving. Secondly, she takes the the ephah back into town and goes to Naomi and I want you to notice three things about Ruth. We're going to look all over, okay? Here's the first one. This is verse 18, right? Actually, it's verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah. That's about 30 to 40 pounds of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, right? Here's the first thing I want you to notice. That, like, we talked a little bit about this last week. I just wanted to highlight it again. Uh, <laughs> the first thing I want you to notice is that Ruth is a strong woman, right? She, last week, we talked about her not being afraid of work. Here, we see her not afraid of lifting, right? She cover, recovers about 30 pounds and then takes it herself back into town. We don't see that, oh man, Boaz assigned one of his dudes to carry it for her. No, she has this plate of, you know, you know how when you, uh, here in the valley, like when, when you're all at the, at the barbecue and like Alan didn't get to show up, what Rebecca will do is like fix him a plate, cover it in foil, right? And somebody has to go take it to him. You see that with Ruth. Like you could see her with this paper plate with foil. And in this other hand, she has this suitcase of barley and she's just like kind of suitcasing it. Farmer carries her way back into town. And it shows me she's not afraid to work and she's also strong and she's more than likely doing this every day. One of the things I shared last week was her work ethic reflects her character. It reflected her humility, her thanksgiving, and the fact that she's unafraid to get after it. The second thing, and I, originally I said I want you to consider three things. The second and the third, I'm just going to fold them in together. So the first one is that she's a strong woman. She has a strong work ethic. The second is her commitment. This is where we're going to park. Her commitment to love Naomi. Go back to same verse, verse 18. And she took it up, that's the, the ipa, or the barley, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. I want you to notice Ruth's commitment to love Naomi. I want you to know that grace produces a thanksgiving that is to be poured out onto others especially those who are hard to love. Naomi, who calls herself Mara, is the only community Ruth has known. Naomi has been bitter this entire time. That's all Ruth knows. And in the midst of that, Ruth has committed herself to her mother-in-law, She has committed herself to love her and care for her and provide for her. 
the only way that kind of love and grace and kindness is possible is through the one who understands that they have received an abundant amount of grace. Therefore, they extend that grace to others, particularly those who are hard to love. Thanksgiving combats bitterness and it ministers to others. Say it one more time. Thanksgiving combats bitterness and it ministers to others. So Christian, let me ask you, are you thankful? Are you able to think or to consider the everyday deposits of grace that you've received this week? the everyday, ordinary moments of grace that you have received. The one I can think of, my wife is out of town right now, and so Friday night, Chango and I, my son and I, we went to Dave & Buster's for like two and a half hours. And then we went to IHOP for like another two and a half hours. Like, it felt like college because I was getting home after midnight and I was really tired. But nevertheless, because you know at IHOP, that's when all the ideas happen off of like cheap coffee, Right? But apart from that, like to me, that was a grace given to me both by my son and the Lord. Eating Brenner, breakfast at dinner, eating Brenner and enjoying some arcade games. Like here's the thing, we've done that before. We've done that a lot. But it's an everyday grace. Or it's an occasional moment where, man, I just, I'm super thankful for the Lord in that time. Can you think about the everyday deposits of grace that you received this week? See, as my son gets older, I start sharing more stuff with him. And so as I was sharing stuff with him at IHOP, one of the things he did was like in that moment, he ministered to me. Told him about some things that were just laid on my heart. And he said the most like prophetic thing, the most comforting thing, he said, Dad, that sucks. I was like, yeah, it does. Right? That's just grace. That's thanksgiving. That's being ministered to. Can you think about that this week? Could you think and reflect on the grace that you've received this week through ordinary moments? See, Ruth is lavished with grace and kindness and her heart overflows with thanksgiving because of simple, ordinary, daily grace. Thirdly, let's look at revival. And specifically, let's look at Naomi's personal revival. This is mainly going to take place in verses 19, 20, and 22. How did chapter 1 conclude? I gave you the brief overview, right? How did it conclude? It concluded with Naomi being called Mara because she had grown bitter toward the Lord. And over time, as we see, Ruth continues to love on her mother-in-law and commit herself to serving her mother-in-law. And yet on this day, when Ruth comes home with leftovers, food for several days, and a job, we see Naomi's heart and attitude begin to make change. We see her begin to worship the Lord. This is in verse 20. First thing we see is that Naomi asks Ruth where she's gone to glean. 
And she's thankful that someone allowed her to glean on their field and bring some food home. But upon hearing that it was from the field of Boaz, Naomi finds hope from the Lord through Boaz's provision and generosity. Let's look at verse 20. Verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, this is after learning that, that Ruth has gone to Boaz's field. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You see, in her hope, Naomi cries out, realizing that the Lord has in fact not forsaken her. That he has not forsaken her or her family. And she uses this word kindness. And if you go back to the first sermon on Ruth, one of the things that we learn about this word kind or kindness or kindly is that it is associated with this Hebrew word called chesed. And chesed is God's covenantal love and pursuit of his people. Naomi realizes this in that moment. That's what leads her to say that God has not forsaken me. He has not forgotten about me. He has not forgotten about my family. And you see this brokenness that is accompanied by joy and humility in Naomi. Secondly, as we see her heart and her attitude change, now she seeks to protect Ruth. At the beginning of chapter 2, there wasn't any of that. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 2. This is, I suppose, verse 2. It's very, very quickly, right? Ruth tells Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to go to the field and see what I can find. What does Naomi tell her? Go, my daughter, period, done, deuces. Now, as we see her heart and her attitude begin to change, now, all of a sudden, she acts upon this revival that she has. She is no longer bitter. or She's moving from being bitter to once again being pleasant. And her priority is now to protect her daughter-in-law. She tells Ruth that it is good that she go with Boaz's workers. Verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. It's actually really good that you're going to go with Boaz because I know you're going to be protected. If you went somewhere else, you run the risk of being harassed, assaulted, attacked, abused. I'm glad that you're going with Boaz. So you see, Naomi experienced this personal revival, and it doesn't just stay there. She doesn't just process it and stay there. She immediately acts upon it. In this little exchange, we see that Ruth is God. She's, Ruth is the conduit by which God extends grace to Naomi. But check it. Let me see that one more time. Ruth is the conduit by which God extends his grace to Naomi. Ruth, the new Christian, the immature believer, the one who is the Moabite, the foreigner, estranged from God, not of the people of God. That's whom he uses to extend his grace to Naomi. Church, is your heart like Naomi's? Is your heart bitter? Can you consider the grace that has been shown to you by a brother or sister lately? 
We talked about these everyday, ordinary deposits of grace, care, and love. Can you see that this week or this season from another toward you? Or the other way around, have you done that to others? Has there been a flow of thanksgiving in your heart that it pours out onto others? Or are you bitter? Here's the thing about Naomi. Naomi knows the Lord and chose to be bitter. Some of you know Jesus and choose to be bitter. It doesn't work. She made a choice and you may be making the same choice right now. And listen, in spite of your sin, the Lord pours his grace out onto you through the everyday grace of another. The question is, can you actually think back to it? Finally, we conclude with redemption. I mentioned that we will begin and end with Boaz in our time. And earlier, we looked at Boaz. Now, we will look through Boaz and what he teaches us about Jesus. This is primarily coming to us from verse 20. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She adds, the man, that is Boaz, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Naomi calls him a redeemer. So let me add a little bit of effect. Let me add a little bit of drama, right? By saying he's one of the redeemers, this adds a little bit of tension in our story because we learn that Boaz is not the only one. He's not the only redeemer. So to understand this tension before looking to Jesus, we need to know what or who a Redeemer was. In Leviticus 25, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Leviticus 25, we see that God writes Redeemers into the law. And the role of a Redeemer, uh, or the, the person who was a Redeemer, was a close relative to a family member who would come to the aid of their family. Sometimes they would provide financial help by buying a family member back and out of slavery. Sometimes they would settle a debt for a family member who owed money. And in some cases, their role was to marry a widow of the family so that the family line would continue. In short, redemption, as it were, is to buy someone out of something to buy them out of bondage, to buy them out of a tight situation, to extend the family line. And so as we consider redemption, and as we consider Boaz, right, as we consider redemption, we must now ask the question, what involves redemption? Right? What involves redemption? Now, real quick, why is there tension? Why is there tension? The reason there's tension is because we're going to learn this in chapters 3 and 4, is because there is another dude who is closer to Naomi, like, Boaz is a really distant relative. There's someone else who's closer. So it adds a little bit of tension in the story. Like, oh no, are they going to get married? So, we'll talk about that later. What involves redemption? I'm going to try and go through this fairly quickly. But there's three things, and we could say more. Let me just be clear about that. We can say more, but there's at least three things that, involve, that are involved in redemption. The first one is willingness willingness. 
There must be a willingness from the Redeemer to buy someone else out of slavery, to get them out of a tight situation. Boaz was willing. We're going to learn in chapter 4 of the other Redeemer. And we're going to learn that this other Redeemer was not willing to redeem Ruth. And here's the thing. Because Boaz is such a distant relative, Boaz didn't have to. Because we learn of this other Redeemer, we learn that Boaz has zero moral or legal obligation to help Ruth out. He doesn't have to do any of it. But he does. Boaz is willing to redeem Ruth and her family. And as we look through Boaz to Jesus, we see that Jesus was willing to redeem us. Jesus, like Boaz, didn't have to, but he did because he was willing. Paul says it this way to the Philippian church. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to redeem you. The second thing that is involved in redemption is a price. Any way you look at it, redemption involves a price, a price to pay. Whether it's redeeming your gift card for something or someone settling a debt for you, redemption always has a cost. In the case of Boaz, he needed to have financial means to get the land, as we'll learn, and Ruth. So not only was he willing, but he was able to pay the cost, to pay the price for redeeming Ruth. As we look through Boaz to Jesus, it was something much more precious than money, but his blood. The Apostle Paul to, to the elders in, in Ephesus in Acts 20, he tells them, hey, make sure that you care for the flock that's among you because God paid really, really good money for them. And in case you didn't know, it was his blood. He paid really good money to call them his prized possession. He says it this way to the Ephesians in chapter 1. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. In other words, Jesus's blood was the currency that he used to buy us out of our bondage. And what do we get? The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, which further adds to his willingness. Third, adoption is involved in redemption. See, in the Bible, redemption is always associated with family, buying someone out of bondage or slavery and folding them back into the family. At the end of our time, at the end of this series, we're going to learn that, that Boaz and Ruth become a family. As he redeems Ruth, they become a family. In Christ, when we are redeemed, we are folded into the family of God by the grace of God. Paul says it this way to the Galatians. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In short, Paul says, the children of God are those who have been redeemed. So why do we need redemption? We need redemption because we are in bondage to our sin, because we are weak, because we simply need help and are unable to save ourselves. See, in Christ, we are bought out of our slavery to our sin. The debt that we owe is paid for by his credit. The slavery that we are chained to and imprisoned to is broken through his blood so that we would no longer be slaves to our sin. That's what it means. He uses his blood as currency to buy us out of the slavery we have to our sin, to the bondage that we are in to our sin. We need redemption because we need Jesus In Jesus, we are redeemed, yes, but we are also folded into the family of God, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, in Jesus, like Ruth, we have a seat at the table with the best elote. In Jesus, we are lavished with his kindness. The outsiders... Those that were estranged from God, alienated from him, enemies of him, orphaned. We are lavished with his kindness, called sons and daughters, so that we could lavish others with the same grace and kindness extended to us. In Jesus, we experience our own revival as the Holy Spirit brings us to spiritual life that at one point, We were all dead in our sin, and in Christ, we are made alive. In Jesus, we see that he was willing to redeem us solely because of his love for us. Redemption is a beautiful thing, church. It's beautiful because it changes Everything, it alleviates us of legalistic morality and produces in us thanksgiving and humility. God has not forsaken you, but is at work in and around you. Will you take a moment to consider his quiet hand of providence? So as we close, Christian, let me talk to you briefly. We've looked at character, we've looked at thanksgiving, and we've looked at revival. What does your heart reflect? Is it inconsistency? Is it bitterness? Even now, the Lord pours his grace out onto you. And this isn't, let me tell you, this isn't something to abuse. It is something to be humbled by and thankful for. See, in humility and thanksgiving, there is worship. So this morning, as you come before the Lord in confidence, lay your sin out before the table. Turn away from your sin and fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus.
and worship loudly this morning. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm so thankful that you are here. In the area of revival, I want you to know something. That if you don't know Jesus, you are spiritually dead in your sin. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And you are estranged from God. You are an enemy of God. However, in Christ, he offers you the grace of salvation. In Christ, he offers you redemption. And Jesus is willing, able, and ready. So surrender your heart this morning. Confess your sin before the Lord this morning. And look to Jesus for redemption. Church, in Jesus, we are not only redeemed from our bondage to sin, but we are adopted into the family of God by the grace of God. Let's pray. God, you are gracious, you are merciful, and full of truth. In Christ, you have made yourself known to us, shining your light in our darkness through the redemption of our sin. God, we confess that we do not always walk in your light or trust in your news to be good news. Often, we close our eyes to your glory, expecting little and hoping for less. So God, would you forgive our doubt and renew our hope as we saw Naomi's hope renewed. Humble us with the gift and beauty of your grace so that we may walk and live in your grace toward others, in the church, in our homes, and in our community. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.